A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language, and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. A derelict multi-storey block of flats in the East Midlands city of Nottingham was juxtaposed against the charming name given to the building, Marple Square. On January 25th, 2005, a fire broke out and smoke filled the air around the flats just off Woodborough Road. Shrill sirens could be heard as firefighters jumped from their trucks to control the flames emanating from the imposing concrete structure. Many of the doors and windows had been boarded up with plywood in a futile attempt to dissuade trespassers. It was an arduous task for the emergency crew to remove the boards before they could gain entry and try to extinguish the growing blaze. After the flames were put out, to their surprise, Firefighters discovered the badly burned body of what appeared to be a young woman. An investigation was launched, which would take the police into the grim underworld of the city's disenfranchised and dispossessed. 
Welcome to Season 7, Episode 34 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Marple Square was built in the 1970s, containing 179 flats and bedsits owned by the local council. It was meant to provide affordable homes for people on low incomes. That decade was during the period of peak council house property development, which had been brought on by the slum clearances in parts of Nottingham. However, many of the blocks of flats were poorly built. The emphasis on cost savings and hasty development made some buildings unfit for purpose. Unsafe for people to live in and creating an eyesore, many of the properties were demolished throughout the following decades. In 2002, it was Marple Square's turn to be torn down and replaced as part of the City Council's Phase 10 improvements. The site was purchased from Nottingham City Council by Riverside Housing Association, which hoped to develop apartments for rent, shared ownership or sale, along with nursery accommodation for mature students and key workers. It was anticipated that they would be redeveloped within the year, but this was an optimistic time frame. Due to red tape, it was an unrealistic goal. The plan was delayed due to ongoing negotiations. By October 2004, all residents had been removed and rehomed, and Marple Square was marked to be demolished for forthcoming redevelopments. The winding staircases were sealed off to try and prevent break-ins, and most flat windows and doors were boarded up. But where there's a will, there's a way, and squatters managed to circumvent the measures designed to keep them out of the building. The harsh winters made the derelict flats freezing, but it was better than having no roof at all. The people who inhabited Marple Square often lit fires inside with whatever items they could find nearby. The abandoned block of flats became a known epicentre for rough sleepers and drug users, a place of desperation and hard living without basic amenities, but they felt they had nowhere else to go. Generally, the locals and the authorities avoided Marple Square as much as possible. However, the council did not want people living on land they owned that was set for redevelopment so extra measures were put in place to prevent squatters. The council removed the wooden boards that covered the windows and doors and replaced them with steel shutters. But still, that did very little to deter people in need from gravitating to the block, searching for a dry place at night. The cycle of people taking up residence and the authorities thinking of new ways to prevent entry continued, at least until January 25th, 2005, when a fire was reported at Marple Square. 
firefighters would find the source of the flames and smoke. It was in a room near the top floor, and it took a tremendous amount of effort to extinguish the blaze. As they inspected the ash and debris, emergency workers realised that the fire had originated from a sofa in the middle of the room, and it was then they made an awful discovery. The badly burned body of a young woman. The fire had destroyed any recognisable features, but after the body was examined by a pathologist, she was identified. Her name was revealed to be Ellen Frith, a 25-year-old who was known to live on the streets of Nottingham. Ellen Frith was born in Chesterfield to parents Alan and Margaret. She had a normal upbringing, but after being introduced to drugs when she was a teenager, regularly smoking cannabis, she began to struggle with addiction issues. When Ellen was 17 years old, she left home and started associating with a group of older men. Her age and situation made Ellen vulnerable, and her new so-called friends encouraged the teenager to experiment with stronger drugs. Ultimately, Ellen got hooked on heroin, a highly addictive Class A substance. Continually under the influence of the illegal, irregulated drug, it completely changed her character. She became increasingly paranoid, and Ellen heard voices warning her that she was going to be killed by her parents. Alan and Margaret tried their hardest to help their young daughter, even seeking the assistance of a psychiatrist and moving her out of the area to stay with other family members. They hoped that a fresh start somewhere new could be what Ellen needed to get out from under the situation but it didn't help. Like a moth to a flame, she gravitated toward the people who did not have her best interests at heart. By New Year's Eve of 2004, Ellen Frith seemed to have vanished into thin air. It would be almost a month before her family learned of her fate after Ellen's body was discovered in the abandoned block of flats, burned beyond recognition. Ellen's cause of death could not be determined due to the fire damage, but a pathologist concluded that she was either dead or in a coma at the time of the fire. All indications pointed toward Ellen being the victim of a homicide, and a murder investigation was promptly ordered. Not long into the inquiry, the police were exploring a viable lead. A member of the homeless community went to the police station with some information regarding Ellen's movements on the night of her murder. He recalled seeing Ellen at the abandoned block of flats shortly before the fire broke out. The witness said that Ellen was in the company of three men he knew. 
26-year-old Mark Martin, 34-year-old John Ashley, and 26-year-old Dean Carr. The witness saw nothing untoward, but it was a starting point from which the police could paint a picture of Ellen's movements. With no fixed abode, it was not straightforward to find the trio, but investigators managed to track down John Ashley first. They brought him to the police station to be questioned. Ashley wasted no time before providing the police with some damning evidence against his friend Mark Martin. Ashley explained that night, along with Martin and Carr, he was in the abandoned flats with Ellen. At first, the atmosphere was relaxed. They were all drinking and taking drugs, but once they were intoxicated, things took a far darker turn. Ashley said that as he was watching television, Martin went over to Ellen, put his hands around her neck and then forcefully kissed her. Ellen shouted, Don't be too rough. According to Ashley, these were the last words Ellen ever spoke. Martin then clasped his hands around her neck and began to squeeze, strangling her to death. Ashley recollected, and was trying to look at the TV and trying to block it out. But I wasn't looking at the TV. I was looking straight through it. I know it sounds strange, but I went and made something to eat. That's the only thing I could think of. After it was clear Ellen was dead... Ashley claimed that Martin stuck a syringe in her leg before he set fire to the flat. Ashley said to the police that he did not stop the murder because he was too afraid of Martin. I know that if I had hit him and it had done nothing, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. That's the first time I've been in a situation like that. And I was scared. And I didn't know what to do. As officers attempted to track down Mark Martin and Dean Carr, they spoke with other members of the homeless community. Wayne John Taylor often squatted in Marple Square. He described his struggles and addiction to crack cocaine and heroin. Taylor knew Mark Martin and told police that on the night of the fire, He had been in an alleyway near Marple Square when Martin appeared. Taylor described how Martin came up to him and started a worrying conversation. Martin told him that he had strangled Ellen and set her body on fire. Taylor wasn't sure if Martin was being serious and asked why. Martin responded that Ellen had refused to lend him £10. Taylor later recalled how casual the conversation was. He was joking about it, like it was funny. Another man, Stephen John Berridge, heard something similar backing up what Wayne John Taylor had told police. 
Berridge was a former heroin addict and rough sleeper who had retained his links among the homeless in the city. Berridge told the police that sometime after the fire, Mark Martin had been at his home when he randomly stated, I've killed three bitches. Berridge recalled, I knew by the tone of his voice that he had obviously killed them, and I wanted him out of my flat. The evidence against Mark Martin was mounting. However, a new development would unfold when the police heard from a man named David Paul Leavers. Leavers, who was also a heavy drug user, explained that Dean Carr had confessed to him that he had helped kill Ellen. Carr told Leavers that Ellen liked to be strangled during sex, and when he arrived at Marple Square, she was lying motionless on the sofa. Carr had allegedly detailed how he thought Ellen was dead, but Martin told him that she was still breathing and he should finish her off. According to Carr, he approached Ellen, wrapped his hands around her throat and began to throttle her until she was dead. The day after Levers spoke with the police, Dean Carr was located and brought in for questioning. He denied outright that he was involved in the murder, but acknowledged that he was in Marple Square that night. He said that everyone had been laughing and enjoying themselves when he left to go to another flat. Carr claimed that when he returned, Ellen was dead and that Martin and Ashley had killed her. Carr told the police, I just gazed at the body for three minutes. Martin said he throttled her, and John's finished her off because she's twitching. Mark Martin was already well known to the police, having been arrested numerous times throughout his life for crimes including domestic violence. He had an unstable upbringing, rarely seeing his father who was in prison, and during his formative years, Martin was frequently taunted about a prominent birthmark on his face. He married young, but after leaving his wife, he lived on the streets. Martin grew to be feared by the homeless in Nottingham, along with his friends John Ashley and Dean Carr. In January 2004, Martin was visited in prison by his probation officer, Leslie Morris. She was speaking with him about domestic violence when Martin admitted that he had assaulted his pregnant wife, Claire, by strangling and punching her. He went on to write a letter to his probation officer in which Martin complained that he needed someone to support him with his, quote, real bad temper. In the correspondence, Martin warned, How long till I kill someone? I'm all right when I'm happy. Everything that moves gets hurt. It could be a lady. It could be an animal. It was so sweet and nice until my dad died. And now I'm evil. 
on November 1st, several months before Ellen Frith's body was found. Mark Martin called the emergency services and identified himself by name. He said that he was having dark thoughts and that he was going to end up killing somebody. He chillingly requested, Can I get locked up, please? I'm getting bad thoughts. I'll end up killing someone. The police did pick Martin up that night, but he was released several hours later. Surprisingly, Mark Martin continued to contact the authorities and even called the police after Dean Carr was arrested. He joked, I think you want me for murder. Martin was eventually tracked down and brought in to be questioned, but unlike the other two men, he said little, only responding no comment to every question asked. Mark Martin, John Ashley and Dean Carr were charged with the murder of Ellen Frith. Following the arrests, several witnesses came forward to the police to reveal that inexplicably, a handful of other women in the city had recently vanished. One of them was 18-year-old Katie Baxter. Katie was born to parents Glenis and Stephen Baxter. While her mother and father had provided Katie and her siblings with a life filled with love and comfort, Katie struggled with routine. She first left home at 14 and went to stay with a family in Radford. After two weeks, however, she returned. Two years later, Katie left again. She said she had fallen in love and wanted to live with her new boyfriend. But like most first love relationships, it wasn't to last and at a loose end once more, Katie then moved to Leicester. She didn't remain there for long before returning to her family, this time staying with her older sister, Charlene. It was at this point that Katie met John Ashley, one of the men arrested for Ellen Frith's murder. She was often the focus of Ashley's violent temper. By early 2005, it was believed Katie had been living rough for around a year, but she always managed to keep in contact with her family. Her loved ones told Katie their door was always open, and she knew she could return home at any point, but Katie never took up that opportunity. On occasion, Katie visited the Friary Drop-In Centre on Musters Road in West Bridgeford, an organisation that helped people who were homeless. Mark Rowe, one of the workers, described Katie as being a nice girl, but very vulnerable. She also occasionally found a place to rest her head at the YMCA in Nottingham. Despite her transient lifestyle, Katie enjoyed ice hockey, and her loved ones bought a season ticket. Each weekend the local team played, 
Katie always made sure to meet her family there. It was a good opportunity to check in and maybe gauge what was going on in Katie's life and how she was doing. After the discovery of Ellen Frith's body and the revelation that other homeless women were missing, the police decided to search other locations where homeless people tended to congregate. Among the spots was a disused warehouse on a street called the Great Northern Close off London Road. Much like Marple Square, the warehouse had become a haunt for the homeless who had set up a small encampment just outside the building which led toward the railway line. As James Murdoch, manager of the Nottingham Antique Centre next door to the warehouse said, They build lean-tos out of stuff dumped here. They are a group of mostly men in their mid-twenties to mid-thirties, and they've never caused any problems. Among this group of men was Mark Martin. He had been living in a tent on the wasteland near the buildings, so naturally it seemed like a good place for police to begin their search. On February 11th, 2005, police descended on the warehouse. It quickly became apparent they would need the assistance of sniffer dogs, as the ground was covered in piles of rubbish and bricks, making it impossible to search by eyesight alone. Almost straight away, one of the sniffer dogs picked up a scent. It traversed its way through the derelict warehouse, jumping over rubble and litter before zoning in on a specific area. The animal's handlers followed and partially concealed under the built-up debris, they came across a body. Even sadder was the fact that the remains, abandoned for some time in the mess, had been gnawed at by vermin. The body was in an advanced state of decomposition, so much so the police could not ascertain whether it was male or female. Nevertheless, the authorities had their suspicions and immediately made contact with Katie Baxter's family to prepare them for that scenario. The last time that Katie was seen was on December 29th, 2004, she left a party at her sister's home on Stockgill Close in West Bridgeford. According to her family, she was in good spirits, but they never heard from her again. Since Katie drifted from place to place, her disappearance was noticed by other people in the homeless community, where Katie had developed several friendships. Her absence was also noted by her family, and after she failed to show up at several ice hockey games, they reported her missing. Two days after the discovery, Katie's family received the crushing news that the body found in the abandoned warehouse was in fact hers. Her parents, Glenys and Stephen Baxter, would pay tribute to their daughter. 
Katie was a lovely, happy girl, and we are absolutely devastated by her death. Our family, including Katie's two sisters and a brother, have all been in shock since the police told us they had found her body. We know the police are working hard to find out how she died, and we urge anyone with any information to come forward and help them with their inquiries. During the post-mortem, Professor Guy Rutty found evidence that Katie may have been strangled. However, due to the advanced state of decomposition, he could not say with 100% certainty. He noted bruising to strap muscles on the side of her neck, and there was a pink change to her teeth, which can be a side effect of suffocation. Professor Rutty stated, It is an important observation which could support the death was by strangulation. Furthermore, there was deep bruising to the right side of Katie's nose and scalp, which suggested she had been punched. Police were already working on the theory that Mark Martin and his accomplices were responsible for Katie's murder as well as Ellen Frith's, but they needed more evidence. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. 
Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Scentair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Scentair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Scentair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Scentair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Scentair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. Another woman living a transient life who had vanished in the preceding months was 26-year-old Zoe Panic. She was the mother to a seven-year-old boy, then in the custody of his father. For the last six years, Zoe had moved from place to place, often sleeping on the streets when she could not find a bed. Her father, Kevin, said, she never really settled or found a career that she wanted to do. She had a rebellious streak and started to mix with the wrong crowd. Coincidentally, Zoe Panic had vanished just two days after Katie Baxter was last seen. For a while, Zoe had been staying with her father in Derby, but he was a volunteer and did not have much money. Zoe frequently made long, expensive phone calls, and Kevin was struggling to make ends meet. It was then things started going missing from the home. Kevin decided that something needed to change. The last time he saw his daughter was in the middle of December when she packed up some clothing and went to stay with her brother Liam. Christmas rolled around, but Kevin had yet to hear from his daughter. Zoe was always moving and the phone calls and visits were few and far between, but she always made sure to call on Christmas Day. Kevin tried to put the thought to the back of his mind, although by early January he still hadn't heard from his daughter, so he decided to report her disappearance to the police. It was quickly established that the last time Zoe was seen was in Nottingham City Centre on New Year's Eve. As details of the murders of Ellen Frith and Katie Baxter dominated the headlines in the city and further afield, Kevin became terrified for his daughter's welfare. He had always worried about her safety as she slept rough on the streets, but now the spectre of a serial killer targeting homeless women loomed large. Kevin provided the police with as many details about his daughter as possible. She was described as white, standing around five feet seven inches tall, with long blonde hair and blue eyes. While there were some striking similarities between Zoe, Ellen Frith and Katie Baxter, police did not want to link Zoe's disappearance with the other two cases so quickly. 
the homeless community is naturally very fluid. People disappear frequently and then pop up again days, weeks and sometimes months later. The police were anticipating that Zoe Panic would turn up, with Detective Inspector Adrian Morgan stating, We have been in close contact with Zoe's family, who have been very helpful. Our main concern is to make sure that Zoe is okay. People go missing for their own reasons, whatever they may be. Whatever reason she may have, it can help her if she gets in touch. There is no indication as to why Zoe would have gone missing, and we would urge her to contact either her family or the police. We are also appealing to anyone who may have seen her at the end of December to come forward. Zoe's father Kevin wasn't so optimistic. He remarked to the media, I have been following the events in Nottingham and I fear for Zoe's life. I just want my little girl to be found alive. I can't think about anything else. I just felt relief when I heard from the police the body found on Friday was identified as Katie Baxter. I don't know her family, but it goes without saying I feel sympathy towards them. As the search for Zoe Panic continued, the abandoned warehouse where Katie Baxter's body was found was cordoned off with crime scene tape as forensic experts searched for any evidence that could assist in the investigation. They were performing an inch-by-inch examination of the building and the surrounding area when they came across another body just a few yards away from where Katie had been found. It was later confirmed to be Zoe Panic. The remains had been concealed much like Katie Baxter's, hidden under rubbish and debris. It was now apparent that somebody was targeting vulnerable women living in Nottingham. Investigators zoned in on a primary suspect in the three murders, Mark Martin. Surprisingly, after being arrested for the murder of Ellen Frith, but before the bodies of Katie Baxter and Zoe Pennick were found, Martin was already confessing in detail to the three murders from behind bars. Carl Beniston was locked up for handling stolen goods, and he had become good friends with Martin. Martin confided that he had killed Ellen after she had taken £10 from him to purchase heroin. He laid out the grim scenario, telling Beniston the same story that John Ashley had told. Martin said that after Ellen died, he put her body on the sofa and made himself beans on toast and a cup of tea. He then slapped Ellen around the face before commenting, You don't look too well now, do you, duck? Martin explained that he then crudely made Ellen's jaw move up and down to give the impression that she was talking. He left to get some petrol before setting fire to Ellen's body and escaping from the derelict building. 
Martin also boasted to Beniston that he would never be convicted of the murder because Ellen's body was so severely damaged by the fire. It could not be proven based on the evidence, he proclaimed. Martin spoke openly about what happened and even joked. In further discussion with Beniston, Martin said that Ellen, quote, cooked like a bit of bacon in the blaze after her murder. During another conversation, Martin also allegedly confessed to the murder of Zoe Panic. He told Beniston that he was motivated to kill her because she had left a hypodermic needle in his bed when he allowed her to sleep in his tent. On the night of the murder, Martin had lured Zoe to a derelict warehouse with the promise of cigarettes, warm clothing and a stolen credit card. As they reached the threshold of the building, Zoe grew concerned. Martin revealed to Beniston how she stopped for several moments, contemplating whether or not to go inside. But Martin reassured her before she eventually decided to go in with him. Martin told Beniston that once Zoe was inside the building, he turned on her. Much like he had done to Ellen Frith, Martin wrapped his hands around Zoe's throat and began to squeeze. She pleaded with Martin and fought desperately for her life, but this only made him squeeze tighter. After Zoe died, Martin concealed her body among rubbish and bricks in the derelict warehouse before setting fire to her clothes. Seemingly unafraid to confess what he had done, Mark Martin further revealed to Beniston that sometime later, he returned to the crime scene where he found there was evidence of animal predation. Martin was seemingly fixated on this incident and while in jail he took a book from the library called Rats and Reptiles. He remarked to Beniston that he wanted to know how much meat rats could consume and how quickly they could eat bodies. Martin said that at first he felt repulsed by murder, but he eventually began to enjoy it and quipped, If you kill one, you might as well kill twenty-one. The admissions did not stop with Carl Beniston. Martin made further confessions to other inmates as well. One afternoon he knocked on the jail cell of Scott Sinclair and said, My solicitor says if I get caught for these murders, I would be Nottingham's first serial killer. By this point, the bodies of Katie Baxter and Zoe Panic had not yet been found. A couple of days later, news broke that they had been discovered and a new segment was broadcast on television. Beniston and Martin were watching the news on a prison TV and after the broadcast, Martin turned to Beniston. A smile spread across his face from ear to ear. Beniston asked Martin if there were any more bodies, but Martin only replied, They shouldn't have pissed me off.
On March 10, 2005, Mark Martin appeared in court and was additionally charged with the murders of Katie Baxter and Zoe Panic. The following month, John Ashley was also charged with the same crimes. Another man, 31-year-old Paul Ellis, was charged with assisting an offender in relation to Katie's death and stood accused of helping Martin cover up Katie's body in the warehouse. In May, Martin and Ashley pleaded not guilty to the murders of Ellen Frith, Katie Baxter and Zoe Panic. Aldine Carr also pleaded not guilty to Ellen's murder. Paul Ellis denied assisting an offender in relation to Katie's murder. As the case was making its way through the justice system, preliminary demolition work began at Marple Square. Workers needed to perform a sweep of the abandoned building. During their search, they collected over 7,000 needles indicating the problems that were too often ignored. The concerning discovery didn't come as a surprise to the locals when one man, Tony Curtin, remarked, I can quite believe it. It's the kind of thing to be expected around there. It is bad, but I do think the revamp will help the area and hopefully help get rid of some of the social problems it suffers from. In July, the demolition finally began. Curious onlookers watched on as the building was torn down by diggers and bulldozers. In January 2006, Mark Martin and John Ashley stood trial for the triple murder. During opening statements, Prosecutor Peter Kelson QC told the jury that Martin was obsessed with becoming Nottingham's first serial killer. He described how the defendant had gloried in his notoriety and said Martin was the ringleader in the three killings. Quote, He seems to have had a fascination with violence against women and the crimes he committed and the suffering his victims endured. Peter Kelson QC went on to tell the jury of seven men and five women that they would hear a lot of testimony from various people, the majority of whom would be alcoholics and drug addicts. He warned jurors to use caution when assessing everything they said. Kelson stated, This will involve a trip into a subculture that many members of society know very little about. Their main interest in life was either a successful shoplift or to the next payday to get benefits to buy the next fix or bottle of strong cider. They were sleeping rough, squatting and sleeping in makeshift shelters. One of the first witnesses to testify was Carl Beniston, the inmate to whom Mark Martin had confessed. 
He was asked by the prosecutor why Martin had taken Katie and Zoe to the warehouse in the first place. Beniston replied, he knew the rats would eat them. The witness further testified that Martin had told him that he killed the three women because he hated them and that they were, quote, slacks. Beniston revealed that Martin called them all bitches as they took their final breaths. Under cross-examination by Defence Counsel Nigel Rumfit QC, it was suggested that when Beniston gave a statement to the police regarding the confession, he had been listening to street gossip and rumour. Beniston vehemently denied this. Following this testimony, Wayne John Taylor took the stand. He told the court about the confession Mark Martin had made in the wake of Ellen Frith's murder. He said that before this conversation, Martin had once spoken about Zoe. Taylor stated, He just said that he had let her and a man called Brett sleep in his tent and when he went back to his tent, he found a syringe in the covers and had sorted her out. He'd smashed her legs in. The jury then heard from a third person to whom Mark Martin confessed. Richard Allen had also been squatting in Marple Square. He recalled how one evening... He heard Martin and another man known as Comedy Bob having a conversation outside his flat. Alan testified that he had overheard Martin tell Comedy Bob that he had killed someone, strangled her and then set her body on fire. Alan recollected, he said she wouldn't die. Scott Sinclair spoke next, telling the court what Mark Martin had told him in jail. He explained that Martin described how the fire didn't burn long enough to destroy all evidence relating to the murder of Ellen Frith. Peter Kelson QC asked, Did he tell you what he wanted destroying? Sinclair replied, The body of Ellen. He seemed quite proud, if anything. I've never met anyone like him before. During the second week of the trial, the alleged accomplice Paul Ellis testified. Ellis told the jury that he had helped pile bricks on Katie's body because he was terrified of Mark Martin. He explained it was New Year's Eve when Martin approached him and bragged about the murder before the pair went to the derelict warehouse. As the New Year's Eve fireworks lit up the sky, they illuminated Katie's body in the darkness. Ellis stated, It was partially covered. I was standing there and I could not believe it. Martin started picking her hair up and touching her hair. 
I could see her legs partly hanging out. Martin was loving it. He was grinning, and it did not bother him, but it bothered me. He then told me to pick bricks up and put them over parts of Katie's body. He was knelt down next to the body and was playing with the body and directing me where to put the bricks. During closing arguments, the prosecutor told the jury that Mark Martin was Nottingham's first serial killer, but he shared that, quote, grotesque claim with John Ashley. He said they were jointly responsible for the murders of Katie Baxter and Zoe Panic. Peter Kelson QC stated, We don't have to prove to you which one of them had their hand around her throat at the time of her death. The evidence will show that Katie Baxter and Zoe Panic were killed by those two men by joint enterprise. Ashley's defence counsel, Francis Oldham QC, countered this argument, telling the jury, Where is the specific evidence John Ashley is part of a joint enterprise with Mark Martin, nature's natural-born killer? Are you satisfied John Ashley has joined Mark Martin as Nottingham's first serial killer? The answer to that is no. After deliberating for more than 21 hours, the jury returned with their verdicts. As Mark Martin learned his fate, he showed no emotion. He was found guilty of all three murders. The jury also found John Ashley guilty of the murders of Katie Baxter and Ellen Frith, but they cleared him of Zoe Panic's murder. Jurors found Dean Carr guilty of the murder of Ellen Frith, while Paul Ellis was found not guilty of moving Katie's body. So where are we now? In February 2006, the sentencing phase was held to determine the minimum amount of time the defendants would spend behind bars. Poignant victim personal statements were presented by the families. Katie Baxter's father Stephen said, Katie was a lovely, happy girl with her whole life ahead of her. Katie was never homeless. She associated with people from the homeless community, and although she often stayed in these circles, there was no reason for her to be murdered. She did not deserve to die. Zoe Panic's father Kevin highlighted the grief he had felt since his daughter was murdered, telling the courtroom, the pain of losing my little girl in such a brutal way will always remain with me. Zoe was not homeless. She had a home to go to, 
but chose to associate with other people who led the homeless lifestyle. Ellen's sister Zoe Mills clutched a tissue as she remarked, No one deserves to be killed, no matter what circumstances they find themselves in. John Ashley and Dean Carr were sentenced to life, with Ashley being ordered to serve a minimum of 25 years behind bars, and Carr being ordered to serve a minimum of 14. This was before a parole board could assess their suitability for release on licence. Mark Martin, however, was told he would never see the outside world again. He was facing a whole life order. In handing down the sentence, Mr Justice Butterfield addressed Martin and said, The facts of these crimes are so horrific and the level of offending is so serious you must be kept in prison for the rest of your life. You have not shown a moment of remorse. You have reveled in what you did, glorifying the macabre details of these senseless, brutal and callous killings. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.